Take your Bibles, please, and turn in your Old Testament to Ezra. Last week we preached, or we, I preached, I suppose, and you listened. We were in Ezra 1-1, and we spent 45 minutes or so on a single verse. This morning we're doing it a little differently. We're going to cover all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. I like to make a small defense of that uh, by way of a reminder. It's actually been over two years, so January 31st, 2021 is the last time we had the narratives preached, notwithstanding last Sunday when I started in Ezra. That was Pastor Nate finishing up Matthew. And prior to that in Genesis, there was multiple times where he covered uh, one, two, or even three chapters in a single sermon, uh, the highlight of which was 106 verses when he preached Genesis 42 through 44 in a single uh, Lord's Day service. So I say that by way of hedging and by way of defense that sometimes the narratives present larger sections for us to digest in one single sitting and to understand maybe some broader points. Even in the way that you might read um, your Old Testament versus your New Testament, you might find yourself reading longer passages of the narratives and perhaps stopping on Romans 8.1 and just having a devotion on a single verse, not to suggest that you can't read those in opposite ways as well. But I'm, I'm saying that by way of defense that I believe uh, Ezra 1 and Ezra 2 form a unit and create for us a point that I think will be helpful. What point is that? Maybe a theme, if I could suggest. Uh, God provides to bring his people into his presence. The introduction is simply Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And this morning we'll pick up in verse 2 and we'll go all the way through 270 verses. There's 80-something verses we're going to cover, not uh, in a slow way. We have five points that we're going to cover, and these are also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Proclamation, proclamation covering verses 2 and Three and four, provision, precious metals, people, and picture. So I've already given you the picture at the beginning. God provides to bring his people into his presence. Um, but if I may, we're going to read the sections as we get to them. And when we get to the section on people, we will not read all of those verses. But let's start in point one, proclamation. Ezra 1, 2 through 4. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is the proclamation that Cyrus makes. And it says in verse 1, he proclaimed it and he wrote it down and he sent it out to everybody. And he says something 
he, he comes to the point maybe a little bit differently if I can compare and contrast Cyrus with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar eventually proclaims in Daniel chapter 4 that Daniel's God is the God of heaven and earth and has helped Nebuchadnezzar and given Nebuchadnezzar this kingdom. But that was after first having been tormented by dreams of a statue being destroyed by a rock and these disturbing dreams that he didn't understand. And then again, by his might and his sovereign rule and edicts being overturned by God, he put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into fire. They didn't die. He was incompetent to have his rule um, be known. He could not make a decree that was enacted there because the Lord overturned it. And then again, he was cursed, if you remember in Daniel chapter 4, to live like a wild animal dreadlocks and long fingernails, and he was eating grass like an animal. Then and only then does he proclaim Daniel's God is the God of heaven and earth. Yet here Cyrus seems to acknowledge it almost immediately. In the first year of Cyrus, as soon as he is ruling over Babylon, which now gives him sovereign rule over God's people, he immediately acknowledges God. I think that an illustration we could point out here is that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow. Would you like to learn the lesson the way Nebuchadnezzar learns it? Would you like to learn the lesson the way Cyrus learns it? Cyrus immediately acknowledges God. He, he confesses him, not as Lord, but he does acknowledge the Lord. And what is it that God has given to Cyrus? It says in verse 2, God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. What kingdoms are those? There is a lot of them. Let's rattle a couple of these off. The Medo-Persian Empire, the Hyrcanians, the Syrians, Assyrians, Arabians, Cappadocians, Phrygians, Indians. One commentator says, and many others. <laughs> All the places where the Greeks inhabited, the Cyprians, oh, and the Egyptians. I skipped a bunch of these. Each one of these aren't cities. These are kingdoms. Cyrus is ruling over all of these kingdoms. Imagine the might and power that Cyrus has, that he is a ruler over such a broad empire. And I think I remember mentioning this when we were studying in Daniel. It's been said by many historians, secular as well, Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom may have been one of the most powerful humans to have ever lived. The percentage of the known earth that he had sovereign rule over was great. And he's overturned by the Medo-Persian empire. Darius and Cyrus take over that kingdom. So you could say much the same of them. Some of the most powerful people to have ever, ever lived. And yet he actually doesn't take credit for it. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's very, very interesting. Why would this pagan king say such a thing? Why acknowledge God? Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, he says Cyrus was shown prophecies about himself and he was able to read things that were written about himself, and that's why he believed. And, by the way, Cyrus and Daniel overlap. In Daniel, we read about Cyrus and Darius. I think you could maybe imagine even Daniel being the one to show him. I think that's an interesting thought. Daniel was one of the three rulers under the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empire. Somebody showed Cyrus these prophecies. What was it that he read? You can flip to Isaiah 45. Isaiah chapter 45, which comes, I believe it's about 100, 150 years prior to Cyrus's life. This is what he read. This is how Cyrus knew that the Lord gave him these kingdoms. In 45, 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord 
to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Cyrus reads these things about himself, sees himself named, and the signature at the end is, I, the Lord, create darkness and light. I bring calamity as well as well-being. So Cyrus does well to acknowledge, the Lord gave me all of these kingdoms. The Lord has given me all of these kingdoms. Let me proclaim that. Can you imagine if somebody handed you a document? and said, this is from 200 years ago, and your name is written right in it, and it tells you where your power came from, and it tells you the power of the person who gave you so many things. I think, I think that Cyrus does well to acknowledge the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. How much greater is it for us? Because it says that Cyrus was known by God. I mentioned this last week. Yet God, uh, God knows Cyrus, but Cyrus does not know God. Do we have a different relationship? We do. In John 10, it says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How much greater our relationship with the Lord, who knows us, and we know him. Cyrus, however, does not know God is Lord. With Christ, we have everything. Without Christ, Cyrus had nothing. And yet he still read the words of the Lord and acknowledged them. And it says that he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Where was this charge? Back in Isaiah 45, in verse 13, it says, Of Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. Cyrus recognized, I've been charged to do this. I read my name, and I was told to build this house. And he says, whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him. Not Cyrus's God, sadly. He says, may your God, may your God be with you. We say our God. Our God is with us. Cyrus says, your God is with you. Let him, those who are among you, go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Go back, build your temple to your God in your place. Peace be with you. Cyrus is an instrument of God, but not a child of God. And he says further, let every survivor in whatever place he sojourns, these are vast empires. They're not all in one place within Cyrus's empire. Let each survivor, wherever he is, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts. 
besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. We mentioned last Sunday, Cyrus has his spirit stirred up, it says in verse 1. So he makes this great proclamation and then writes it down. And he says in so many words, if you're a Jew, you can return home. Go to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. Ask the people around you for money and supplies. They'll provide. I do this because the God of Jerusalem has charged me to do it. This is, in a sense, his great proclamation. I do this because this God told me to. And this God separates light and darkness. And he brings calamity. And he named me. Go. Cyrus, this pagan king, was stirred up by God and gives release to God's people. How much greater is Christ the king of kings? We said Cyrus was the king of king, right? We have the king of kings in our Lord. Because Cyrus, the pagan king, what does he say? Go. What does Jesus say? Come. Jesus says, come, right? Christ is both God and king. He says, come, all of you who are weak and weary laden. Cyrus says, you of God's people can go. Jesus says, you are my people, so come. We look to something better. And when Cyrus makes this proclamation, do we have a proclamation we can look to? Something that says something better than go back and offer animal sacrifices again and keep the law. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can look to an even greater proclamation. In point two, provision, starting in verse five. After Cyrus's proclamation, he sends the word out. And here's the response. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up Go, uh, who spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. God is making provision through Cyrus's proclamation. And who does he make the provision to? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. In Ezra 1, it says, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. In Ezra 1.5, it says, everyone whose spirits had been stirred up. And if you remember, we said about Cyrus when his spirit was stirred up, it was as if he was agitated until he did the thing. Imagine these heads of the houses. These are the people who want to. They're compelled to do it. Those who won't be satisfied until they see the job done. Inspired, moved, stirred up with holy infections. These are the ones who should return to Jerusalem. All of you heads of house whose spirits have been stirred up. This is borrowed language, by the way, from Haggai 1.12. We can, we'll get there another time. But it says in, in Haggai, those whose spirits were stirred up, and it names Zerubbabel and Jeshua and some of the others. So these are the ones who are going to go. Why? Why did they need their spirits stirred up? Everybody wants to go home. Everybody wants to go back, right, to where they're from and where they belong. Why did they need their spirits stirred up? Was there a temptation for them to stay in Babylon? Did they have conveniences, a settlement, maybe agreeable acquaintances with their neighbors? If you can, turn to Jeremiah 29. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the passage. Jeremiah 29 is instructions to the people in exile. Especially I'll read verses 4 through 7. The heading in my Bible says, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. So this is what they did. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, 
to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Lord, Lord, we did those things. We built families. We got comfortable. We made memories. 70 years. I said the same thing. I'm 41. I can't remember 70 years of anything. There's traditions. We sought the welfare of Babylon. And we found our own welfare there as well. We established ourselves. And we made it what? Home. We made it home. And now you want us to leave and go back. And by the way, it's not going well where you want to send us. It's prosperous here. We're safe. We did what you told us to. No, the Lord has to stir up their spirits and remind them that there is a better place for them. He has to remind them that this is not your home, where you're prospering, where all your friends and families are, where you have literally built homes and planted gardens. Here is my home. Here are trees that I planted that now feed my family. Here are my neighbors who I do business with. And you now, Lord, are asking us to leave. He's reminding them, you're not at home. Your time here in Babylon was temporary. And how is he going to provide to them? In Exodus 3, at the burning bush, the Lord gives some instruction to Moses. And then at the end of Exodus 12, we see this happen. In Exodus 12, 33, now here we are at the end of the plagues. In Exodus, we have God's people in exile in Egypt, right? Where's the parallel here? In Exodus 33, it says, after the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians were terrified after these plagues. Here, go, take, leave, get out. You and your God, get out of Egypt and go. Ezra's the parallel here, but it's a little different now. Now we have a more willing contribution. It says they aided them. Not fear this time, not buying them off maybe you might think like the Egyptians, but in a way more willing. It says they were aided. You can even compare the two exiles a little bit. In Egypt, 400 years as slaves, making bricks of straw. Oh, and go cut your own straw, by the way. And at the end of it, a hard-hearted Pharaoh who refused to listen to the Lord. And then violence, and then death, and then 40 years in the desert, escape and pursuit. But here in Babylon, 70 years. 
that's a long time, but that's not 400 years. And this time we've got to raise families and plant gardens. And at the end of our exile, we have a gentle Cyrus now saying it's time to go. We get aid from our neighbors. How gracious is God to his people? How gracious is our Lord? How often does he deal gently with us? His care unfolds in such a beautiful way for us that there are times where we build the bricks and cut our own straw, and there are times where he gives us help from our neighbors. But the Lord is working in those things both ways. And I think we see the love for Christ that he has for his church slowly unfolding in the Old Testament as he deals with them gently and patiently. Seventy years this time, and a more peaceful journey home. Not a perfect journey, not without some danger and concern, but this time I'll make it a little easier on you because I love you and I care for you. Does the Lord work in your life that way? Are there times when you can sympathize with the Egyptian exile and times when you could sympathize with the Babylonian exile? Or maybe times where you could think a little bit that you're getting a foretaste of the glory divine and that you feel that you're at home amongst the brethren? These are all meant for our good so that we can understand the Lord cares for his people. The Lord cares for the sparrows. How much more he cares for his people. And he deals with us gently. And he deals with us differently at different seasons of our life. Sometimes through the fire. Sometimes through the flood. You might think of the fire of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You might think of parting through the waters of the Red Sea. But no matter what, through the blood of Christ, that's the way he's going to deal with us. Because he loves us. In point three, precious metals. Point three, precious metals. Verse seven. Cyrus, the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. These vessels that were stolen in Daniel chapter 1, you can read, Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple. In Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson defiles these same vessels. He has a terrible, evil ceremony, and he says, bring out those vessels. The Lord kept track of all of them, and he brings them back to his home. I think there's some comments we can make about gold and silver under this point, precious metals. The Bible has 425 references to gold. I did not count those, so you can fact check me if you like, but I'm taking that on good faith. And it's kind of a paradox it's mentioned so frequently, and yet it's referenced because of its scarcity and its difficulty of attaining it. So frequently we talk about something that is so difficult to obtain. Its primary value of quality is, its primary quality is its value. That's primarily what we think of with gold, that it's valuable. It's also valued for its permanence and durability. Possession of gold is the mark of wealth with Abraham, Joseph, Xerxes, Mordecai, Crowns are made of gold. Gold is one of the gifts offered to the infant Jesus. The head of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is made of gold. That's why he thinks he's going to last forever. Because that's what we think of with gold. 
I'm gold. I'm so valuable. Silver has a lot of the same um, connotations in Scripture. It's often mentioned together. Um, Also, silver, we think a little bit of the price of a person. Joseph is bought for silver. Christ is betrayed for silver. The vessels of the house of the Lord, which we read here in Ezra 1, are made with silver and gold, and they're to be returned to the Lord's house. He did not forget the precious, valuable, treasured vessels that were to be in his house. He numbered them, 5,400, bring those back. In 2 Timothy 2.21, it says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The temple vessels made of the most valuable things, they point us to us. We are the vessels in the temple. And we were bought with a price so much greater than gold and silver. We were purchased with the blood of Christ, not silver and not gold. And even we who are vessels of clay, we get to be made like gold and silver as adopted sons and daughters, and we are the great ransom of Christ. He paid for us with his blood. He cares for us as if we had eternal value. We get to be made like him, for him, and by him. And where do the vessels of the Lord go? To the temple of the Lord. Who is the temple of the Lord? In Ezekiel it says, I will dwell in the midst of the people. In Zechariah it says, I will come and dwell in your midst. The temple is the presence of the Lord. In John 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wait a minute. The temple is where you dwell, Lord. We have to go to the temple, and there are ways that restrict us from full access to you. What does this mean? The word becomes flesh? And in John 2, Christ says it of himself. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Christ is the temple, and his death is the foundation that is building his church, and we are the vessels of silver and gold. In Matthew 23, Christ says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, now that's something. And he says, You fools. What's more important, the gold or the temple That sanctified the gold. The temple, of course, is more important, even more important than the gold vessels within it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the chief cornerstone, building up his church, taking common vessels, adorning us like we are gold, which is of utmost value, permanent and pew. See the saints in these vessels being counted, named, cared for. I know where you were, I know that Babylon tried to defile you, but I purify you. The temple purifies the gold, and I bring you in. Point four, the people. I say here in my notes, verses 2, 1 through 67. We won't read those. We'll skip just a little bit. But I want to make a couple of comments here about the people of the Lord. After we have heard the proclamation, we've seen how God provides for his people, We see how he sees his people as precious metals. Who are the people? 
Well, they came up with a few named leaders. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, I think, are named first. In my notes, at least that's the two I'm going to talk about. They are. Zerubbabel and Jeshua are like the Moses and Aaron. Zerubbabel is the governor who's mentioned in verse 63. Jeshua is the chief priest. These are among the people that are going to be returned to God's city. It says in verses 2 through 35, you could see if you want to just understand how this long roster of people who are going is broken up. Look um, right before, you know, at the end of long verse 2, right before verse 3. The number of the men of the people of Israel, colon. This whole section is the number of the men of the people of Israel. In 36, it says, and the priests. Here are the priests who went up. The number of the priests is about a tenth the size of everybody. About a tenth of them were priests. And the Levites, an even smaller minority compared to the priests. And the Levites are considered to have some of the lowliest work of the temple. They're like the temple servants. Maybe they were reluctant to leave. That's why so few of them came up. Maybe there wasn't enough people. In Ezra chapter 8, Ezra laments it. He musters the people to go to do the work of the temple, and he could get 38 people. That's how much it says in Ezra chapter 8. And the temple servants in verses 43 through 54 are listed. These are the lowest class of temple personnel, probably the Gibeonites we learn in Joshua chapter 9. And then again, we read of the sons of Solomon's servants. These were amongst the people that go. Nobody really knows who these are. Maybe Solomon conquered a people and put them into service. We're not sure. But let's, um, let's stop for a minute, verses 59 through 63. The following were those who came up from Telmala, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. They couldn't prove it. These are those who could not prove their father's house they could not prove they belonged to the house of Israel. Let's rejoice that we can prove it. We can prove that we belong to our father's house. And we can prove him. You say, what do you mean we prove him? Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. We don't try the Lord. And yet when we trust him, it's proven that he is trustworthy. Great is his faithfulness. We know the lineage of our house. We've been adopted into the Father's house through the Son. And we can say, see, he's ours. You can't say my name's not in the book. I belong to Christ and he belongs to me. He bought me with his blood. Our name is written in a book, a book even greater than Ezra, believe it or not. The Lamb's Book of Life, a more sacred record. That's where our names are written. You can see here even a people of God called out of a people of God. Not everybody left Babylon. Not everybody left Babylon. Some stayed behind. And so in our final point, the picture. What's the picture? I said that this is God providing for his people to bring them into his presence. It's probably the same in all of your Bibles. If you start on the left, I can see all of Ezra 1 and 2 open in front of me. It's just the way my Bible happens to be formatted. So I, I have a visual in my mind of pilgrims, dusty, in their robes, 
donkeys and camels with a bunch of goods strapped to them, leaving a dark land and journeying home. How long is the journey? It's 900 miles. It says later in Ezra that it was a four-month journey. So that's all of us gathering all of our things, our children, our goods, our possessions, knocking on our neighbor's doors. Help me. We're leaving, packing up, and then going to Portland. That's where we would go. That's 900 miles away. It's the biggest city I could find that was 900 miles away. Just imagine, if you will, the visual there. We're leaving. I mean, you could play the visual out a little bit more. We're leaving a pretty nice city. We're going somewhere that might not be so nice as far as we're concerned, but this is our journey, where we got to go. So this is the picture of God's people leaving to go home. And after a long journey, after generations of waiting, it says they make an offering. They go back to where they were exiled to the place where the presence of the Lord was said to dwell, to the very site, in verse 68, made free will offerings to erect it on its site. And they made an offering. They made a free will offering. In Exodus 25, it talks about the first of these free will offerings. Take a free will offering, and it says of gold and silver, and use those goods to build my house. In Ezra, we see take an offering, and then build these things, rebuild those things. So we have God's people, this is the picture, cast out of his presence for not being holy, then called back and given instructions. What were those instructions? Do this and live. And they failed, and they were sent out again, and then they were called back. Do this and live, and they failed again. It's cyclical. This, this exile motif. So how do we trace this in just a brief few minutes here at the end? Going all the way back to the very beginning. Further back than Egypt. If you think of the exile, it's fine to think of Egypt. But there's a, there's a first exile, an archetypical exile, with our first parents. Adam and Eve were cast out of the first temple. The garden is the first temple a physical place where God dwells. They were cast out of the presence of the Lord because our first king, first prophet, and first priest, Adam, failed. And because he failed, he was cursed and sent out of the garden. And when he was sent out of the garden, this is all at the end of Genesis 3, at the end, when he was sent out, it says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. They were expelled from the presence of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord was guarded by cherubim so that they could not enter back into the presence of the Lord. What are these cherubim? In Exodus 25, the cherubim are... uh, described as part of the plan for the Ark of the Covenant, designed to cherubim and fix them atop the Ark of the Covenant to guard the presence of the Lord, as they do in the garden. In Numbers 789, God speaks to Moses from between the cherubim. So here in in Genesis, God sends Adam and Eve out of his presence and guards his holy place with cherubim. 
And a generation later, after this first exile, what do we see? We see Cain and Abel. It says, in the course of time, Cain and Abel brought an offering. In verse 4, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He brought an offering to the Lord. He brought it to the Lord. Where was the Lord? The Lord's presence was said to be in the garden. Where do you think that Abel went? In the, all of the Old Testament explanations of how we ought to offer our sacrifices, the description of the temple and the veil and the ark is get as close as you dare as you are allowed to to the presence of the Lord. Where was Abel going? Back to those cherubim guarding the garden and laying an offering there where I suspect he may have even been hearing the voice of the Lord. So this is where we find ourselves in Ezra. A generation later, we're going back to where our ancestors got us kicked out of, and we're going to get as close as we dare and make an offering. That's the picture that we see in Ezra. Finally returning. Lord, we've sinned. We've been in exile. You have brought us home. Here we are in your presence on your hill. We can worship you in truth. We can worship and sacrifice you according to your law. Some, maybe all, I don't know. We'll do better, Lord. We'll try harder. Because they're under the law. They're under the law. Certainly there are some faithful among them. But they're under the first covenant. So this picture must point us to something better. And I say it points us to the Lord himself. What is the ultimate of all free will offerings? The Lord Jesus Christ. He says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Christ is the ultimate free will offering. Christ leaves Eden to come to Babylon. Here we have God's people leaving Babylon to go back. Christ lives the life of an alien and a sojourner, and he keeps the law. Christ keeps the law for us. And then he makes a pilgrimage up the hill too, up Golgotha. And that's where he makes the ultimate free will offering. An offering much greater in value than silver and gold. His body broken, his blood spilled, as we have emblems of right here. And this sacrifice, which at the end of Ezra is a free will offering for the house of God to erect it on its site. What is the free will offering that Jesus Christ makes on that cross? It is the cornerstone of the temple. See what we have in Christ, a surer foundation. The foundation is built upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we are the gold and silver vessels that get brought in to the temple. And we don't look to the law, but we look to Jesus Christ. He's the author and perfecter. It's Jesus that we rest in, not in Jerusalem, not in the physical temple, not in an ark behind a veil, not in the presence of the Lord guarded by the cherubim, we get to go past the cherubim. We go past them because we've been reconciled to God in Christ. We get to say, Father, Father, we get to say it to him. And do we look even further? Do we go even further than that? Yes, because we are sympathetic to the experience of the exiles. We're also here not yet at home. We know the hope that was in them, to go home. For them, many, though, it was 
I hope we can do better. For us, it's Christ has done best. Christ has done it. For them, it was, I hope we can repair our temple. For us, we say, Christ is the chief cornerstone of the temple. Christ is building it. For them, it was, our God is greater than the Gentile gods. For us, it is, Christ is the Lord both of the Jew and the Gentile. We get to look towards a brighter future. And that is the picture that we see. The Lord provides for his people to bring them into his presence. And I'll close with this, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the pictures that you have given us today of your care for us, Lord, your people. Thank you that you take care of us. Thank you that you don't leave us alone and without a hope, even as we are not home yet, Lord. Thank you that you provide, strengthen us and encourage us, even nourish us, Lord, here as we gather on your day. We pray that you continue to sustain us until we finish our pilgrimage and enter into our eternal rest and see you face to face. And until then, Lord, keep our faith strong. Build our faith and our trust in you. We are weak and often foolish. And Lord, we need your help in everything. And we trust that you will provide it and we beg you for it. And we say all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.